Our sermon today is taken from Psalm 40. This is the word of God. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have not encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappoint altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought from me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jeanette. Friends, we're taking a break uh, from the series in the book of John that we've been in this whole year and really part of last year. And we are, this next two weeks, last week was our, so it's three weeks, last week was our first one, this is our second, and next week will be our last one. So this this next two weeks, uh, uh, we've been talking about three different psalms. Uh, uh, and the psalms, or the Psalter, is just a collection of prayers to God in form of song and poetry. And they're used in public worship by God's people in the Old Testament. And some of them are filled with confessions and laments from the psalmist. Some are filled with royal praises to God the King. Some are filled with complaints and hurts. Some are filled with calls for justice. And our psalm today has a bit of everything in it. There's thanksgiving, there's praise, there's some lament, there's some confession. And what a great point that Elias made last week when he brought to us uh, our, our first psalm for, this, uh, for these three psalms is that the Christian life really encompasses all of those ranges of emotions, don't they? And really sometimes they're felt at the same time. The human heart isn't like an old operating system that can only process one emotion at a time, right? You open Word and Excel, then it crashes, right? That's not what the human heart is like. The human heart, it can process many emotions in one time. And it's complicated and it's messy. And Christians aren't called to deflect and ignore them. They're called to trust all of them under the loving care and rule of God. And that's what the psalm does for us 
today. The psalmist doesn't deflect the roller coaster of emotions that our hearts frequently are forced into, even when sometimes it doesn't want to be, right? He acknowledges it and shows us how he navigates through it with God as his loving king. And friends, that's what we need the most. During these roller coaster rides, right? It's not helpful. We don't want someone to be throwing out cliches from the safety of the ground. As good as their suggestions may be, that's not what your heart needs, is it? What we need, we need somebody to jump on the ride with us and tell us, I felt it too. I've been there too. I know how that is. The fear, the joy, the excitement, the sadness, the anger, the anxiety, the helplessness. And today, that's exactly what the psalmist does. We're in this roller coaster ride, and we look next to us, and we see him seating right next to us from the ups of praises to the depths of lament. But as we look at him today, we also see something peculiar, that there's something different about him, that in the midst of this ride, he seems to have a comfort. He's even singing a new song, verse 3 says, and it sounds restful. It sounds joyful, not because he's not on the ride, not because he's not experiencing the trials that we are. He's in the same ride we are. But somehow the truth sung in this song transcends even the most frightening of tracks. What is it? Who does it sing of? Who is he singing to? And why does the song shape the heart and life of the psalmist in such a way? And can I sing this song as well? Four things I want to point out from our psalm today. The song of the redeemed. The obedience of those redeemed. The nature of this redemption and the cost God paid to redeem. The song of the redeemed, the obedience of those redeemed, the nature of this redemption, and the cost God paid to redeem. Point one, the song of the redeemed. First thing, you read this psalm, and you immediately see that this song is not about him. It's not about him. See, in counseling, it's often important, it is very important to look at the wounds of our past. And it's often very beneficial to look at our family dynamics and the worldviews that's shaped and all that kind of stuff. And if you've done premarital counseling or joined regroup in CCC, you know that I'm a huge proponent of that. I'm all for that. But if our hearts are never eventually directed to the Lord, who he is, what he's done, we'll never know this joyful song that the psalmist sings of. Look at what gives him peace in the midst of the ups and downs of life. It's not ultimately an epiphany of self-discovery. It's not. But it's an encounter with God, even in the midst of his depression. Look at verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. Now, many commentators find that translation a bit domesticated. In the Hebrew, it's literally, I waited. Waited for the Lord. Waited for the Lord. The psalmist says it with more of a groan, almost an agony. He was waiting to be delivered. Not sure, we don't know what from, but whatever it was, it was painted as a bleak and dire situation. Look at verse 2. It's described as a pit of destruction. What vivid imagery. You know, an empty room might have communicated loneliness. A dark cave might have communicated fear. A hole in the ground might have communicated hopelessness, but a pit of destruction? That summarizes all of those things, right? 
empty loneliness, dark fear, and deep hopelessness. And as if that wasn't enough imagery, it's described also as being in a miry bog. A miry bog is like a deep, muddy ground. So, so the picture here isn't of a um, water well that's neatly cemented with steady grounding, but it's a dark pit filled with deep mud. You ever walked in deep mud? Remember how much effort it takes just to take one step forward? Remember how slow and exhausting life felt? This is the situation the psalmist was in. But what launched him into song? The deliverance that comes from God. The Lord drew him up, verse 2 says. The Lord put his feet out of his miry bog upon a solid rock. What made him sing this new song in verse 3 is a deliverance from the Lord, which he experienced out of this bleak season. Now, I know it's tempting to think. You hear what I just said, and you're thinking this. Oh, this is one of those passages, this is one of those sermons that, that's going to tell me to trust in God, and if I trust in God, I'll be happy because he's going to solve all my problems. No, it's not. It's not. I know it's tempting to think that, but the picture here isn't that God came and swooped the psalmist out of all his earthly trouble, and now because he's no longer in any trouble, he's happy and praising the Lord. No, it's not. But it's that this initial deliverance, whatever it was, somehow made him trust the Lord so much that even though there was still trouble in his life, he was able to have joy. Yes, he was delivered from this initial felt need in verses 1 to 2, but then if you look down to verses 14 to 16, what do you see? It's clear that the psalmist still had earthly troubles. You see in verses 14 to 16, there are people who are seeking to hurt him. There are people who want to destroy him. There are people who want to see him fall. So you look at the song in verses 3 to 4 that he's singing, and the focus isn't a lack of earthly problems. It's not. But it's a newfound relationship with the God who he now can trust, even in the midst of problems, even in the midst of calamity. Verse 3 to 4, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. He trusts in the Lord even when there's still enemies encompassing him, even when troubles in life were still dire, and even maybe at times your feet feel like you're in deep mud. This is a blessedness that the psalmist is described having in verse 4. The blessed state of someone who has grown to trust in the Lord even while he still had enemies surrounding him. Biblically, therefore, a blessed man is someone who loves and trusts God and sticks to his commandments even when life brings him to the deepest of pits and the muddiest of grounds. And this is completely countercultural, right? When is it, do we tend to use the words or describe somebody as blessed, when is it when you look at somebody and you say, man, that's a, that's a blessed person. When the term blessed is used to describe somebody, what kind of person is it usually describing? Perhaps somebody who just landed a new client, right? That's a blessed person. Or a person who gets a much coveted position at work. Man, what a blessed guy. Or someone who has very little trouble in life. Right? Or those who, who, who seem like life is just fine and good. And man, what a, what a blessed person. Those are the people that we usually associate with the term blessed. But that's not at all the picture that the Bible presents. When was the last time 
you saw someone whose life situation has taken him down to the pits of destruction. So much so, he's in the borderline of depression. But yet he waits. He waits for the Lord. Slow, small steps his muddied feet might be taking, but slow, small steps toward the Lord they be. He lacks energy. He's downcast. But he delights in the Lord with a delight that doesn't delete the problem, even in his depression, but makes him trust in the Lord even in the midst of it. With all of his heart. And whatever happens, he will not take shortcuts that is outside of God's will. He will not turn to the proud. He will not go astray after a lie, even though those shortcuts can take him out of the situation that he's in. Why? Because he trusts in the Lord infinitely more than he trusts in himself. When was the last time you saw somebody like that and you said to yourself, what a blessed man. What a blessed man. Because that's the picture of someone who is in a state of blessedness. Not someone who has no issues in life. But someone who has experienced an initial deliverance from the Lord. A deliverance that doesn't swoop him out of all his earthly troubles. But a deliverance that causes him to intently love and trust the Lord. To where even through earthly troubles, he can sing about him. To him. For him. Because this deliverance has caused him to know beyond a shadow of doubt that God will never forsake him. Look at verse 5. The psalmist doesn't say, O Lord, the God. He says what? O Lord, my God. He's mine. I am his. And that is a solid rock I need in the midst of destructive pits and miry blocks. Which leads us to our second point. The obedience of those redeemed. I remember a pastor once saying, being a Christian means you at some point stop going to God just because of felt needs. You stop going to God just because you have felt needs, but because you simply want him and find him to be beautiful. How many people do you know who comes to church because of a felt need? And then they stop coming to church because that felt need has been met. For example, someone going to church to look for relief from their depression. But then when they're out of their season of depression, they stop coming to church altogether. A Christian isn't someone who goes to church primarily for relief from felt needs. A Christian is someone who goes to church because they want to worship the one true God whom they love and trust truly from their hearts, no matter what season they're in. And this was the nature of the psalmist's relationship with God. His obedience transcends just his felt needs. Verse 6 to 8. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Now, to offer animal sacrifices was a law that God instituted in the Old Testament as something to do before God's people can enter into a relationship or communion with God in the temple that he was residing in. 
Why did God make all the, you have to kill a lamb, you have to kill a, a bull and a goat, and why is to emphasize the reality of God's perfect holiness and man's sinfulness. And even though God's holiness prevents man from being with God and prevents the holy God from being with sinful man, yet God loved his people so much that he made a way of animal sacrifices to where the sins of the people will be put on the offering that they may be clean and can therefore approach God. But the problem was, it started to become ritualistic. People just started to do the motions, and they missed the point. The point is for them to be reminded of God's holiness and the brokenness of their sinfulness, to where they would approach God with thankfulness and a contrite, humble heart, because even though they don't deserve it, God still made a way, but they missed it. And it slowly just became a ritualistic, old, traditional pattern. Psalm 51, 16 to 17 speaks of this too. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. That's not the, the point. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. To approach God with brokenness and contriteness and humility, that's the point. But the psalmist says here in verse 5, he gets it. It's not just a ritual to him. He has an open ear. The end of verse 6 says, he gets it, he understands. It's not about ultimately these animals and these burnt offerings. It's about trusting and delighting in God. As he says in verse 8, I delight to do your, delight to do your will. That's why he can trust the Lord and, and chose to obey his laws even in the midst of miry bogs, even in the midst of depressing times. Because obedience to God is a delight to him, not just an external Sunday morning thing that he does. See, when you delight and trust in something, stress doesn't make you abandon it. It actually makes you run to it even more. Think about it. Think about your life. When you're at your lowest moments, when you're at your bleakest moments, the deepest of muds, who do you run to? The friend that you trust the most. Right? See, when you trust something, bleak times don't push you away from them, bleak times draw you to them. In the last minute of a game, when the score is tight and the team is most stressed and anxious, who do they give the ball to? Their most trusted player. They don't say, all right, I'll give you the ball. Here you go. No, they say, here, take it. Take the ball. You see, deep sad moments and anxiety-filled times don't push you away from the things that you trust. They actually reveal what is it you trust most. The question isn't primarily, how are you externally behaving in your dark nights? God isn't saying, I don't care about your depression, you just have to obey me. No. The question isn't, how are you externally behaving in your dark nights? But rather, how does your dark nights reveal the level of trust and delight you have upon the Lord? How does your dark nights reveal the level of trust and delight you have upon the Lord? Are you drawn to him in the midst of it? Are you trusting his commands and laws over your own self? Or are you pushed away from him? Are you, are you drawn to your own solutions and pride? So to summarize, the blessed man isn't the man who lacks trouble, but the man who has experienced some sort of notable initial deliverance from the Lord, an initial deliverance so notable and so weighty that it leads him to love, delight, and trust God so much to where even the rise of dark moments actually make him want to go to God more 
not away, because he truly loves and trusts him, not merely in external form and tradition, but truly authentically. That's the blessed man. Don't show me your money. That is not a sign of blessedness. Don't show me your career advancement. That is not a sign of blessedness. Don't show me how rich your family is. That is not a sign of blessedness. Don't show me how glorious your incest stories are. That is not a sign of blessedness. Look at which direction your misery propels you toward. Look at which direction your misery propels you toward. Then you'll know. Then you'll know whether or not you're a blessed man. Now, there's a bit of an unexpected twist in this psalm. And this twist, I think, will show us the reason why this initial deliverance that the psalmist experienced was so notable, it was so weighty, that it launched him into this new love and trust relationship with God, even in the midst of his um, um, uh, depressive times. Point three, the nature of this redemption. Let's move on to verses 11 to 13. Verse 11 to 13. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. There are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. See, here's the twist, you see. This whole time, it seemed like the initial deliverance that the psalmist experienced in verses 1 and 2 was as if he was this innocent bystander that God saved purely from external injustices. He's somebody innocent that's been wronged by an external injustice, and God kind of saved him from that, right? And even if you read the beginning of verse 12 that we just read, the psalmist says, evils has, have encompassed me. What is, what is it that we initially think of? We automatically think of external evils. Evil's out there. That's encompassed him, right? But then you continue reading verse 12, and it actually shows a different narrative. What is this evil that encompassed him? It wasn't external evils. It was what? His own sin. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. And I cannot see. My sin, they're more than the hairs of my head. I can't count them. And all of a sudden, we get a different picture, a different narrative, that the pit of destruction and the miry bog that the psalmist was delivered from in verses 1 and 2 was not totally disconnected from his own sin and his own mistakes. Sure, I'm sure there are some external injustices and evils that were done, but he wasn't completely innocent in the whole thing. You see? And now, now we understand why this deliverance was so weighty to him. Why it was so sweet. Why it made him trust God more and made him able to call God as my God. Because God saved him not as an innocent bystander that was wronged, but as a guilty man who didn't deserve it. God saved him not as an innocent bystander that was wrong, but as a guilty man who didn't deserve it. Look, an objectively moral person who simply loves the concept of justice, might save an innocent man simply when they've been wronged, even when he doesn't know this man personally, 
when they don't have a personal relationship. I know a few people here at CCC um, who's been moved to help with the refugees that's fled to Indonesia. Notice, some of you probably volunteered to do it before you even knew these refugees personally, right? You just love the concept of justice so much, you're drawn to help them, even if you don't have a personal relationship with them. And people here that are vo uh, volunteering for the Mercy Ministry, you, you decided to volunteer for it before you knew these kids personally. You just had a sense of justice and a moral rightness that and moved you to do it. That's all you needed. It doesn't take a deep personal relationship to want to help an innocent bystander who's been wronged. All it takes is a good sense of justice. But to help a guilty man, you see, to help he whose evils are beyond number, that takes more than just a sense of justice. Think about mere sense of justice would have actually pushed you away from this kind of person. A just man might be moved to save an innocent bystander without having a personal relationship with them. But when you're the guilty participant who's contributed to the, to the mistakes, to the brokenness, who's contributed to the situation, you know who's going to come to bail you out? Not the stranger who merely loves justice, but the family member that loves you. You see the difference? An innocent by, uh, 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 somebody who loves justice might save an innocent bystander without having a relationship with them. But no one's going to save you out of your own guilt unless they love you, unless they have a relationship with you. How does God view the, the psalmist here? What's the narrative here? God isn't just some objective moral observer who saved an innocent man who was wronged by external evils. God is a loving father who bailed the psalmist out even when it was his own sin that contributed or even perhaps caused the situation. <laughs> Don't you see? That's why he's singing. This isn't a song sung by an innocent victim that was saved by a stranger who has a sense of justice. This was a song sung by a guilty child whose father bailed him out even when it was his own evils and iniquities and sin that brought him there because he loves him. This is why the psalmist didn't say, look at the objectively just God. No, he said, look at my God. Look at what he's done for me. That's where his love and trust of God comes from. Not because God has proved himself to merely be a God who loves justice, but because God has proved himself to be a God who loves him and bailed him out even when mere justice would have perhaps di dictated otherwise. I don't know where you are here today. I don't know why you're here today. You might be here at church because you want God to take away a felt need that you have. You might have come today seeking for an objective moral bystander, God, who can deliver you from a particular problem you have. Look, whatever reason it is you're here today, I'm just glad you're here. But listen, your heart will never sing. If that's all you're seeking, for a savior to deliver you as an innocent bystander from external problems, your heart will never sing. And you'll never grow to trust and love him like the psalmist did. And you will not become this blessed man as described earlier. But if you see what the psalmist sees, who realizes that he is the guilty sinner, who God has delivered from his own sin, then, and only then, will you sing. Will you be able to move towards becoming this blessed state that the psalmist was in, a state of love and delight and trust of God, even in the bleakest hours 
which will only cause you to run to him even more. Look at verse 14 to 15, where the psalmist encounters people. Um, verse 14, these people have delighted in his hurt. Verse 15, these people, uh, when, when, these, when he sinned, these people kind of wanted to catch him in his sin. Aha, aha, you failed. I knew you were going to fail. I knew you are a wretched sinner. I told you, look at him. In the midst of all this, all this trouble, you know how the psalmist responds? He doesn't deny his sin. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, but it wasn't just that. It wasn't that bad. You know, I'm not that sinful. Stop being so legalistic. I'm not that bad. Nor does he get so cast down and so self-depreciating. Oh, you're right. You're right. I'm so sinful. What does he do? He says, look at my God. He runs to God. He says, you're right. My evils are beyond number. My sin and my iniquities are before me. And even as I try my best to delight and obey God, I slip up and I fail and I fall. But great is the Lord, he exclaims in verse 16. Great is my Father in heaven who would have pity and deliver a sinner such as I. Verse 17, I am poor and needy, but the Lord, the Lord my God, takes thought for me. How great is our God. By the way, throughout the psalm, you see that this is the kind of man God uses to spread the good news of his salvation. Verse 5, 9, and 10. This man is shouting out loud to his congregation and to the world, how great is my God. This is the man who God uses to proclaim his gospel. Not the man who's been delivered from financial security, difficulty to financial ease. That's not the man God uses, but the man who's been delivered from his own sin unto the hands of a heavenly father. Not the man who's been delivered out of earthly sickness into a prolonged earthly life. What is a prolonged earthly life? But a guilty sinner who deserves eternal death, but yet has been delivered unto everlasting life by their gracious heavenly Father. That's the one God uses to preach to his congregation. Whatever felt need brought you to church today, I'm glad you're here. But if you never move, toward wanting him for more than just relief from earthly needs, you'll come and go to church and worship him depending upon your felt needs and a particular season of life you're in. Because at the end of the day, he's just a moral God who's out there fixing problems for innocent bystanders like yourself. But if you move toward a biblical understanding of him and receive him as a father who saved you from your own sin, then you'll continue to worship and trust and obey him in any situation in every season because you find him to be your God who saved a wretched sinner unto himself. Okay, move on to the last point. The question remains, what is this initial deliverance that we need to experience before we can make that switch? What initial deliverance is so notable that can make us trust God in that way? Last point, the cost God paid to redeem. A lingering question hovers over this whole text, right? If the psalmist is guilty of evils that are beyond number, how could God, who is just and holy, right? How could this just and holy God save him, redeem him? We just saw in verses 6 to 8, God cannot ignore sin, which is why he instituted this sacrificial offering system that people must offer and perform before they can approach God. So how can this just and holy God be a holy God who upholds justice and righteousness but yet save this psalmist and bail him out out of his guilt and evil when he should have been judged for it. Well, interestingly enough, you go to the New Testament and it also speaks of a sacrificial system. 
But the object being offered here is not a bull, not a goat, but something else, or rather, someone else. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1, 4 to 7. For since the law, talking about the Old Testament sacrificial law, has, has but a shadow of the good things to come, it's just pointing to something else, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year every year, make perfect those who would draw near. Saying the point isn't these goats and animals that are being sacrificed. For it is impossible for the b- blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Look at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Sounds similar. But a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin uh, and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Who does the New Testament say the ultimate sacrifice that the Old Testament sacrificial system points to? Jesus. God the Father sent God the Son, and in verse 5 said, prepared a body for him, right? He, Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God. Matthew 1.23, this is what Christmas is all about. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us, who took on flesh. Now, why did God have to come down and put on flesh? Just to give us an example of how to live? To give us business advice about extending our, and expanding our career? To be a life guru that's going to teach you life moral principles? No. He came to be prepared as a sin offering. For the evils that is in our hearts that are beyond number. And he bailed us out from the iniquities that has overtaken us. John the Baptist saw Jesus Christ and said what? Behold, the Lamb of God. On the cross... Jesus entered the darkest and most destructive pit of all, forsaken by the Father when he didn't deserve it. Why? So that in our lowest and darkest moments, the Father will never leave us, even when we deserve to be left by him. You know, Christians, in heaven there will be one person, one person only who can say these words, the Father truly abandoned me. In heaven... Only one person can say those words. The Father truly abandoned me. The Father truly left me in my darkest hours. I had no solid rock to stand upon. And I know that person often feels like it's you and it's me. But you see the gift of the cross and it's not you. It'll never be you because it was Jesus. He entered into the darkest of nights for your sake so that in your darkest hours, you will always have the light of the Father who reminds you of who he is for you, a loving Father who bailed you out of your own sin. And you need to know that. You need to trust that. If you ever want to move toward becoming the blessed man as described in this psalm, you need to know that. If you think that at some point God is going to leave you, if you think that there is some point in time that God will stop calling you his, you will be tempted to cut corners. You'll revert to your own means. You'll stop trusting in him and his commands, but on yourself. You won't be able to have the patience to wait. Wait for the Lord and remain obedient to him in the midst of your dark days. But on the cross, he showed you he'll never leave you. There is no external threat too big. 
there is no internal sin too appalling that would make him leave you. He's not just a neutral bystander who loves justice. He's your father that would pay the highest cost for you. Choose now your narrative. Who you are and who God is to you. Will you leave this room believing the prideful lie that you're an innocent bystander who God needs to save from your external problems? Or will you receive him? And his blessed offer that although we're all guilty sinners, God has redeemed us through his blood. One narrative will make you leave the church when your problems are done. The other will make an eternal worshiper out of you who delights in his laws. One narrative will cause you to feel grounded only when there is no trouble in life. The other will place your feet upon solid rock even in the midst of trouble. One narrative will make you mouth this next song we're going to sing in mere external form. But the other will cause you to truly sing the song of the redeemed. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Choose now your narrative. Pray with me. Father, our Father in heaven, you have not left us to the justice we deserve. You are not an objective bystander who goes around saving people out of external evils. You are a loving Father who sent your own Son to become the sin offering and take our place on that cross. For when it is us that should have experienced the fullness of your wrath, instead you sent your son to die and drink the whole cup of your wrath for us so that now we can have you forever. And now church doesn't just seem like an external form of routine, but it's a place where we come to you and sing to you and worship you. And Father, I pray that this truth causes us to continue to grow in deep love and trust for you that the deepest, most saddest, dark nights of our lives will show and draw us closer to you because it is you who we trust and not in the prideful arrogance of our own ways. For you are our Father who bailed us out and will never leave us because of Christ and what he's paid for us on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray.